0: You can see um, the turning point uh, on TV uh, right the way, th- do you remember as a kid? You probably remember as a kid, before Christmas, it was really quite exciting, wasn't it? It was as the build-up to Christmas, uh, you get all of those really great adverts on the TV, all the, the adverts that you wanted to see, uh, and then almost, well, actually not almost, literally overnight, it changes It used to be that um, it was now announcing all of the sales and that's not the case anymore because we now have sales before Christmas. So what we see far more on our TV is all of the announcements, things like, um, you know, that you need to really eat Special K, uh, you really need to sign up to one of these um, programs where they send you uh, all of your food. Pre-delivered uh, for the whole of the day, everything that you need, calorie control, all of that kind of thing. Or you need to plan for next Christmas. Actually, they were advertising that before Christmas even, with Christmas hampers and all the rest of it. Or you need to prepare for your holiday, all of those kind of things. It's an interesting time, isn't it, New Year? It's an interesting time um, for us as a church. It gives us an opportunity just to pause for a minute. Uh, we've had uh, a really great build-up and a really great time through Christmas, but this afternoon really is a turning point. We're going to start a new series uh, next Sunday. It's going to be called The Walk of Life. We're going we're to be looking at what it actually means, what are the implications to walk the Christian life. Uh, and in a sense, this afternoon is almost one of those turning points. Because it comes, that, that question, the walk of life, really comes from a, a deeper issue, which is a decision to live in a particular way. Uh, we make all sorts of decisions. The television adverts that we've been watching are encouraging us to make some of those decisions. We make decisions about how we live. What are our objectives of living? How are we going to... What informs you and what informs me about the way, literally, the way that we spend our days? What informs us? There are a whole plethora of rock stars uh, who have taken, lived by the mantra... Uh, live life in the fast lane, live fast, die young kind of attitude. That is a life decision, isn't it? It's a way of living. It's a way of deciding this is how I'm going to spend my life. I want to suggest to you that that is based on the idea at a much deeper level that my life only exists within the boundaries of what I can see As a living human being, and life's fulfillment is made up by getting the most out of it as much as I can. That is a life decision. It assumes that this life is everything, it assumes that that is all there is. Now, to a greater or lesser extent, many of us are thinking in exactly the same way, whether it's an absolute commitment to a fantastically healthy way of living because what we want to do is to maximize life, get the most out of it and hey there's actually there's nothing wrong with that in one sense Uh, or we say I'm going to just kind of throw myself into a partying kind of life. I don't really care about what I eat, what I drink because who, who I spend time with because after all Life is just here to be lived. One of the great things about the Bible is that we see characters, we see people engaging in ordinary life, asking all sorts of ordinary questions, asking ordinary questions of life. In fact, what we're looking at this afternoon is one of those questions that was posed by an individual who came up to Jesus It's a fascinating question. We see it in verse 22. Jesus went through, um, 23 actually, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem, and someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? It's just a fantastic question that, isn't it? It seems, on the one hand, to be loaded with... um, religious thinking. You know, as soon as we use the word saved, we immediately think of certain ideas, certain views of what life is all about and what eternity is all about, the idea of being saved. In one sense, that's absolutely true. The individual who asked this question was asking Jesus this question from a very particular context. He was asking the question on the basis of being a Jew, living uh, within the context of a Jewish way of looking at life, and asking the question, so tell me, this idea of eternal life and eternal salvation, is it for lots or is it for a few? So that question was asked of Jesus in a particular uh, context. I want to suggest to you, before we dismiss it and say, well, that's fair enough, therefore it has no relevance to me, I want to suggest to you that actually that very same question in a slightly different uh, context from a 21st century perspective continues to be asked again and again and again by so many people. And in a sense, it connects with what we've been looking at. Who is going to be saved? Well, is there anything like being saved? Being saved, we assume, is some sort of hope after this life. If We think about being saved in that way. It's hope after this life. The idea that death is not the final kind of point... It all disappears at that point. It's over. But rather that there is something more. Now if we think about the idea of hope after life as the idea of being saved in a much broader context, we start to realize that that very question is being asked, isn't it? Again and again and again. And in a sense... It is the most striking question for us to begin a new year with. It is the most challenging question for us to begin a new year with. How many are going to be saved? Is it lots or is it a few? Is there salvation? Is there the idea of being saved? Is there hope after this life? We've said it on many occasions, if you've been coming along fairly regularly, you will have heard this before. The reality is that we find it almost impossible to live with the idea that this is all there is. I I know that we live in a a world which, being honest, the whole idea of... um, evolutionary, uh, accidental, foundational idea of life and being, um, many would say at the highest level of academic thinking that that idea is actually on the wane. That what we see is a plethora of people who are asking the question about spirituality and about life and about eternity. There are far more people asking those kind of questions. When we get to grassroots kind of issues, we realize that we ask those questions. If you have experienced the tragedy of losing a loved one, we know, don't we? We know deep down that we wish and we hope for and we use language which talks about the idea of hope and peace after this life. We use that language. In a sense, it's right that we want to use that language. It's wrong that we want to say, that loved one, that's it, that's the end, it's all over. And so this person, I think, is asking one of the most poignant questions which is being asked by many people today. But do you see the dramatic shift That Jesus makes in responding to that question. Look at what Jesus says. He said to them, (laughs) In fact, it almost sounds, doesn't it, like he doesn't answer the question. So tell me, how many are going to be saved? Make every effort. To enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter or will not be able to. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? What Jesus says. He actually takes however that question was asked, and we don't really know. We don't know whether it was some sort of trick question We don't know whether it was a highly intellectual, philosophical question. We don't know whether it was a question which was rooted in some dispute in the cafe or the bar that lunchtime. We don't know the foundations of the question. But what we do know is that Jesus turns it round and he makes that question which is initially general, he makes it personal. That's what he does. He says to the person who is asking the question, do you know what? In a sense, in a sense, it doesn't matter, does it? You just make sure. You just make sure. Make every effort. I find that such a striking response from Jesus and so filled with the kind of narrative that will have gone on over the past few days as we enter into a new year. I want to ask you, for 2014, what is your objective? It sounds to me as if what Jesus would be saying to every one of us here this afternoon is this, make every effort. Commit yourselves. Be diligent about the idea of being saved. Be diligent. The word that's actually used there is agonize. Agonize. It, It carries that sort of idea of contending for being absolutely determined. It's it's the start of, uh, in a few weeks' time, some of you know that I'm involved now with Cast Tigers, it's the start of uh, the new Super League season coming up. One of the things that I just find mind-blowing is the level of commitment and dedication and determination that goes into being a professional sports person. It's just incredible. It's astounding to watch it the kind of commitment, and and actually the very, very small margin between success and failure. And that the success or failure is very often down to the level of determination and commitment that is made by that individual pursuing their goal. Absolutely fascinating to watch. If you happen to see it, and even, you know, this is great for me, this this one. guy called Guy Martin. I don't know whether anybody's uh, Guy Martin's speed series. Last night on TV, Guy Martin absolutely determined to be the world record, uh, no, the British record holder for riding a bicycle at the fastest speed possible. What determination, what commitment... And what brains out <laughs> to get on a bike behind a truck which has got a, a, stream, a, a slip streaming panel and then to ride a push bike at 120 miles an hour behind a truck um, on, on a beach on hard-packed sand where all of the sand is kicking up, going under the visor, couldn't see whether, where the truck was in front of him. The guy is absolutely, incredibly committed. You know, those kind of pictures is just the kind of language that Jesus uses when He talks about the idea for you and for me almost as though he personalizes the question and says to you and to me, be committed and determined about the idea of being saved. Be committed. When I think about that, when I consider those kind of implications and, and I consider my life and consider the the commitment and the dedication and the determination, I feel frail. I feel hopeless. I want to see three things. Firstly, and this is really a stepping stone into these next few weeks, what Jesus is encouraging this individual and all of the hearers is to live within that determination. That's the first thing that we're going to look at, to live within the determination. Secondly, we're going to see that there can be the danger of assuming and failing. And then thirdly, we're going to see the hope of a door opening. One of the things that we see uh, increasingly is the idea that to, to really pursue something It's not just a case of having it as part of your life. Whatever your career choice, whatever whatever you are committed to, whatever is part of your life, one of the things that we see is that we actually have to live that, don't we? Some of you, I I know, find that a huge challenge because your own particular careers are, are... They've just got your life. That is part of the living experience of work today. I, I know. I know what it's like. I, I've experienced that where, where my commitment to a chosen career, I find myself in a commitment which I, I, just, I just cannot get off. I, I, it's not as though my work is a part of my life My my work actually consumes my life. I live my job. That's a reality. Uh, Part of me would suggest that that challenge exposes to us part of the brokenness of living in this world that, that what we experience is not actually what it should be. We find that it consumes our life, that we have no choice but for it to consume our lives, and yet we realize that it shouldn't be like that. Because when something consumes our lives, we lose, you ready? <laughs> you're ready for this, we lose the joy for it. Um, work should be a pleasure. Work should be a privilege. We should enjoy work. But when it totally consumes us, we lose that. And if, if here's a word of warning, I guess. If we don't lose the joy for work, when it totally consumes us, then we lose the joy for other things, don't we? We find that we do not have the resource to love and embrace absolutely everything. So here's the thing, what are we going to prioritize in our lives it's a great, um, it's a great uh, uh, illustration of this, which um, somebody took a glass bowl, some of you will have heard this, and um, filled it up with water. And alongside the water was some sand, alongside the sand was some pebbles, alongside the, sand, the pebbles was some stones. And then asked the gathering, To put the priorities of the stones into the bowl without spilling anything. (laughs) And of course, you can't. You pick up a stone, you drop it into the water, and the water floods over. But the stones are the priorities. Actually, if we tip the water out and we put the stones in first, and then we put the pebbles in and give it a shake, we find that the pebbles actually lodge down around the stones, and we can get some pebbles in as well as the stones. And then we find that we can get some sand in as well as the pebbles and the stones by shaking it around. Uh, And then we realize actually against all of that, what we can then do as well is get some water in as well. We pour the water in and it seems as though we can get more and more and more water in. But if we get the priorities wrong, we can't get the other things in. Jesus is saying you need to inhabit your priorities He's saying starkly, "You need to live with an agonizing commitment to the idea of being saved." That sounds so. Um, it doesn't sound particularly nice, does it? it? Doesn't sound the kind of the nice kind of message that we would want to think about when we think about the idea of a. loving God who just wants the best for us. It's uncomfortable. And yet that is what Jesus says. You need to prioritize. And the thing that you need to prioritize is to make every effort first and foremost is to pursue being saved. Second thing that we see is that there is the the danger of assuming and failing. Look at the way the story unfolds. Jesus goes on to say, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. It's a picture that Jesus is painting to say, (coughs) well, yes, salvation is in some sense at the end. There is a point at which that... In figurative terms, don't run away with the idea when Jesus paints pictures that heaven has some sort of door on it. Jesus is painting pictures and using language so that we might understand uh, the idea and the thought. There is a point at which God will say, the door is now closed. The opportunity to be saved has ended. That varies, of course. But inevitably, for many of us here, it will end at the end of our lives. It might not end at the end of our lives. It might end when Jesus returns. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But there is a point at which the door closes. What Jesus is saying is life now is the opportunity for us to be ready before the door closes. But it goes on to say, because there are some people who will bang on the door, figuratively speaking again, and, uh, and say, Sir, open the door for us. And he'll answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then they will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Again, for us to understand this, we need to take ourselves into the context in which Jesus responds in this way. We have, who asked the question? We have somebody who was from a Jewish heritage, who asks the question, who's going to be saved? Jesus personalizes it, and then Jesus says, now be ready. Because there is the likelihood, the possibility, the danger of assuming. What is the assumption that has gone on? If you see the picture that's being painted, the individual is knocking on the door and saying, let us in. Why? Why should I let you in? Because you're one of us. <laughs> you came and you act with us. You, you were in our streets. You talked with us. In other words, the reason why we should be able to be in there is because you are one of us. You're a Jew. In other words, the individual who is assuming and the danger that Jesus is presenting is there is a danger of assuming in this particular case, in this particular case of this individual or these individuals, there is a danger of assuming that salvation is automatic because of my heritage. It's what Jesus is saying to them. In fact, he makes it even clearer because he goes on to say uh, in verse 28, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. That's a kind of, you know, that sort of angst. That's the picture that Jesus is drawing there. That kind of weeping and grinding of teeth kind of picture. That angst. Have you ever had, I I suffer from this when I'm stressed. Middle of the night, I find that I grind my teeth. Do you do that? Um, Some of you will. And it's not nice, but that's what I do. And it's that kind of angst, that kind of tension. And I know that it's there, and it's kind of a picture. It reminds me that that is what is going on in these kind of pictures where Jesus is saying there is a grinding of teeth. But when they look inside, they realize Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, in fact, all of the people that have gone before that we would say, well, they're part of us as well, they're our heritage. And yet, we're outside, they're inside, and then comes the shock. But you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. In other words, salvation, according to this picture that Jesus is painting, is not determined by my heritage there is the possibility for this individual who asks the question, they will be surprised, they will be shocked because they will realize some from their heritage are saved and yet people from outside of their heritage are saved and those who think that they are safe because of their heritage find themselves outside. In other words, surprisingly, I've assumed that heritage is safe and then I realize that it's not. Now, most of us don't need to be threatened with that particular perspective because most of us are not relying on the fact that we are from a particular Jewish background to secure our salvation with God. However, We live in a world, a Western, 21st century world, which also makes certain assumptions of what we need to do to be saved. I I guess we could could class them in two ways. One way is some kind of be-good, works-based idea. That's one idea. In other words, if I'm good... If I do all the right things, if I, if I weigh up my behavior and if I'm as good as I can be before God, then I'm going to be saved. That's what God needs from me. I guess that that comes from 1,500 years in this country of a Christian perspective of the idea that sin is an issue to God. And therefore, because I know that sin is an issue to God, I need to do all of the things that I possibly can do so that I'm not sinful before God. So 1,500 years of heritage has probably drilled that into our thinking where we have this idea of being good is what God needs and therefore I'll be good. That's one idea. The other idea is, if you like, it's a kind of a claim idea. So... I realize the weakness of this. I realize the weakness of this is that I know that I can never, never do all of the things necessary for me to be good enough for God. Therefore, I realize that what Jesus comes along and he says is this. Believe in me. So all I need to do is just say I believe in you. You know, I, I kind of a pick up um, some of the language. I say the necessary prayer. And at the end of my life, that's fine. Because I've, I've claimed the trump card. The trump card that says that's fine to get into heaven. That's great. You know, you're not relying on being good because you can't rely on being good. That's not good enough. So what I rely on is the idea that I've done the necessary thing to get saved. Now, I use that word really specifically because that is all about works, isn't it? It's all about doing the right thing. But then if we stop and if we really think this is all about doing the right thing as well. It's about... If that's about saying to God, you've got to accept me because I've been a good boy or a good girl, this one is all about saying, you've got to accept me because I've done that. I've said that and I've done that. Therefore, you've got to accept me. I've done it. You know what Jesus actually says, I think, is he defeats both of those. He destroys both of those. Right. What does it really mean to pursue? (laughs) Because if we think that what Jesus is saying is work really hard to be good, we miss it. So it's not this but it's not this one either. It's neither. It's about you and me thinking, what does Jesus, what, what does it mean to really diligently pursue? It means that I really need to come to terms with what saves me. I need to grab a hold of what saves me. I need to think through that. I need to embrace it. I need to grab a hold of it. And I realize that being good isn't good enough. And just saying a prayer isn't good enough. I need to embrace what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I need to embrace what it means for Him to be my rocks in the glass bowl. I need to embrace what it means for me to take a hold of Him and to pursue Him with all of my commitment and say that is my goal. At the beginning of this year, if we reevaluate our lives, if we can cons- reconsider where we are and we realize my pursuit is not pursuing being good, nor is my pursuit. my my ambition just relying on what I've done in the past, my commitment is this, to inhabit and to live who I am. A believer in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you I know probably would say, I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't believe in Him. I've not committed to Him. And I would say that I just love and value the fact that you've been willing to come and spend some time with us this afternoon. I really want to thank you. But I want to suggest to you as well that maybe what I'm trying to convey is that the idea of being a Christian does not mean that it's all about doing good. Of course, the change of Jesus in my life means that I want to do good. I want to be uh, modeling my life in conformance to Him. But my life and my faith and my hope and my salvation is not dependent on my success. It's about me living day to day with that desire, with that ambition, with that goal, with that hope. So the works-based model and the claim-based model falls apart. And Jesus says what I think a lot of people, and this is what we're going to be looking at over these coming weeks, how do I live? How do I get up each morning and how do I shape my life so that I am pursuing a life which is agonizing and determinedly pursuing salvation. It's my goal. In other words, to inhabit my faith. So that my faith is not a claim of work any more than my good behavior is a claim against God. That I am living it out day by day. You know one of the things that Jesus in fact this little passage opens up It gives a tantalizing little taster of where our hope actually is. Look at what Jesus says as he carries on. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, uh, When you see Abraham, the prophets, Isaac and Jacob, and the kingdom of God, he puts it off. People will come from the east and the west and north and south and will take their place places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and those who will be first who will be last. Then he goes on to say, at this time, then he confronts another issue, that is Herod is wanting to kill him. And Jesus says, Jesus ties into the idea of Jesus wanting to kill him with the idea of a whole history Of people who have spoken, people who have been prophetic with regards to Jesus, who have also been killed. Look at what goes on. Go and tell that fox, I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. On the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. What a weird thing to say in the light of what's just been said. In other words, there's this heritage of God's people who have been silencing the voice of God. They've been killing God's voices in the past. They've been subduing, they've been hating. It's a little warning, isn't it? Because we can so easily desire to shut up the voice of God. In other words, that is a little taster of what it means to be on the outside. That we've lived our lives silencing the voice of God. There are people, maybe for you, down through the years, maybe experiences, maybe even this afternoon, Little occasions where there has been a confrontation in your mind and in your thoughts. Ideas of God, ideas of life, ideas of eternity, ideas of Jesus. And what you have um, either intellectually or relationally done is you have shut them up. What Jesus is saying is that that's the history for those who are on the outside. Jerusalem, Jerusalem you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen, gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. (laughs) Do you know what? Don't ever, ever think that, that God is some kind of hard, distant You've got to reach the mark, uh, and then I might save you. Look at the words that Jesus uses. I wanted to gather you, but you wouldn't come. You wouldn't come. I wanted to gather you. Maybe that applies to some of us this afternoon. We've heard, if you like, the, the calling of the mother hen Jesus in that picture saying, come and let me gather you in, and we have silenced the clucks. (laughs) We've silenced the voice, and we've said, I will not listen. How far will Jesus be prepared to take it? He actually answers right here, by saying this. What kind of prophet dies outside of Jerusalem? Now, As we close, that is such a tentative little statement that Jesus makes. It's designed to make us think. What kind of prophet gets killed outside of Jerusalem? Well, maybe me is what he's saying. Maybe I'm just the kind of prophet who is killed outside of Jerusalem. I'm just that kind of prophet. In fact, all of those other prophets, they didn't realize it at the time, but all of those other prophets that were killed when they spoke the Word of God were a picture preparing the way for me because I'm the ultimate prophet who is killed. That's how far he's prepared to go to pursue His voice of calling and to secure those who will be saved. I hope that the next few weeks, as we start to dig into our new series, are going to be helpful to us. I want to encourage you, if you're able to, come along. But maybe this afternoon is an opportunity for us to say, wherever we are in relation to Jesus, am I living... In a way which is determinedly pursuing being safe.